A very good afternoon to our distinguished speakers and participants. Thank you very much for joining in this webinar on innovation and collaboration. Uh, and a big thank you to the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore for organizing this webinar. Today, um, we have three distinguished speakers. And before I begin, uh, we, before we begin, um, allow me to do a short introduction of this webinar and our speakers. So this year actually marks the 25th anniversary of the Singapore-Israel Industrial Research and Development Foundation. It has funded about more 190 projects since the start. And last week, um, we had a very successful Israel-Singapore Agri-Food Summit in Tel Aviv. And also just this month, the Enterprise Singapore actually led about a business mission of about 20 Singapore companies and agencies to Israel. So more than 25 years ago, this, there has been this active collaboration between the innovative countries of Singapore and Israel, and has continued to strengthen over the years. And of course, our collaboration actually begins since the founding of uh, independent Singapore, since the start of independent Singapore. And in March this year, Singapore and Israel signed a memorandum of understanding on cross-border cooperation on artificial intelligence. And this year, uh, we are glad to share that Singapore has also established its embassy in Tel Aviv. So for the webinar today, uh, our speakers will speak about the theme of innovation and collaboration. Our first speaker is our chairman of the Middle East Institute at NUS, Mr. Bilahari, and he has, who has spent a distinguished career at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where he served in various positions in Singapore and also abroad. He was the, our ambassador to Russian, the Russian Federation, as well as our permanent representative to the UN in New York, as well as our permanent secretary of MFA. And he continues to write actively. And uh, I also look forward, look, look forward to his insightful and incisive commentaries. He's our first speaker. And our second speaker is uh, CEO of Thrive DX SAS, Mr. Roy Zer. He's a cyber intelligence expert uh, who actually has more than 15 years of experience in cybersecurity and intelligence operations. He was in the Israeli Defense Force, Unit 8200, and he retired, he left as a major. And he, since then, he has continued to develop uh, cyber education programs and technological solutions. He's also an active uh, entrepreneur who is involved in innovation and collaborations. He will be our second speaker. And our final speaker will be Ambassador Kani, He's the, our Israeli ambassador to Singapore, and he has uh, also had a very distinguished career in the foreign affairs. He was serving as his first posting in Beijing, and after that, he served as the deputy chief of mission in Oslo. Uh, he has also had experience in Angola as the ambassador and then and non-resident ambassador to Mozambique. And subsequently, he returned back to Israel to serve as the foreign affairs advisor to the Minister of Energy and Water Resources. He's also familiar with Asia 
he actually served as Consul General to Singapore and Macau in 2013. And we are glad that he is currently serving in Singapore as the ambassador. Um, so now, without further delay, uh, may I uh, invite our first uh, speaker, Chairman Bilahari, to share with us his thoughts on innovation and collaboration. Uh, thank you, Edmund. Welcome, everybody. Thank you all for joining us in this webinar to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Singapore-Israel R&D Foundation. I'm going to be rather brief. None of you really came here to listen to me. And what I know about uh, research and development and technology would, could be written on a postage stamp. Uh, for the young people who may have uh, accidentally logged on, a stamp is a queen old communications technology used in conjunction with an even older combination te communications technology called uh, a letter. In any case, the less I speak, the less chance of making a complete fool of myself. So if you have specific questions on innovation or technological collaboration, please direct them to the other members of the panel. Of course, I might still make a fool of myself. That's a habit I have. But perhaps the chance of that happening may be somewhat less if I stick to what I know and try to place this particular aspect of our relationship with Israel in a broader context. Um, three years ago in 2019, to celebrate 50 years of Singapore-Israel diplomatic relations, the Middle East Institute and the Israeli Embassy in Singapore launched a book aptly entitled Beating the Odds Together. And if I may be permitted a small plug for the book, it's well worth reading, so go buy a copy, please. Uh, here it is, you know. Um, now to Singapore-Israel relations. The vital help that the so-called Mexicans gave us in establishing the Singapore Armed Forces at a time when no other country could, would help us is well known. It was an act of faith in our future without which we not, may not have had a future. And the foundation of the special relationship that exists between Singapore and Israel. That relationship has since broadened to include many other domains and the organization whose 25th anniversary we are celebrating is one example of the multi-dimensional character of Singapore-Israel relations today. It would be boring and not particularly useful for me to list all the areas in which Singapore and Israel collaborate today. Instead, I want to reflect a bit on why Singapore and Israel have been such good partners. And I'm going to make two broad points. Firstly, 50 years ago, our geopolitical circumstances were broadly similar, although Israel's circumstances were certainly more complex, dangerous, and precarious. Today, our geopolitical circumstances remain complicated, but it is clear that Singapore and Israel are here to stay and are inescapably part of our respective regions. So I said, our strategic environment remains complex, but the nature of the complexities confronting us have changed. The Abraham Accords are reshaping the geopolitical architecture of the Middle East in ways that some countries in Southeast Asia, indeed some Singaporeans, have still insufficiently appreciated and responded to. Southeast Asia, once considered the Balkans of Asia, 
It's not without challenges, but today is by and large peaceful and prosperous. These happy changes were largely the result of global geopolitical shifts, but largely it's not entirely. As crucial were the factor that Singapore and Israel hold in common, and without which we could not have navigated their geopolitical currents, navigated both in order to avoid treacherous reefs and shoals, and also to scoop up opportunities. We could not have navigated these geopolitical currents to bring us where we are today. And that common factor is the belief, it's the strong belief that small countries, however dire their circumstances, are never, never without agency. That belief is the fundamental reason why we beat the odds. Of course, whether you have the wit to recognize the opportunities and the courage and agility to seize them are different matters. But there is always something you can do to command your own fate. In both our countries, in, in different ways and for a variety of internal and external reasons, this fundamental and absolutely crucial belief is being challenged. Perhaps less so in Israel, but then here, but still challenged. But we should never forget that fatalism is fatal to small states. Second, we didn't just beat the odds, but we beat the odds together. And I want to reflect a bit on the complementarities between Singapore and Israel. The existence of complementarities implies the existence of differences. And of course, despite the similarities of geopolitical circumstances and the belief in our agency, there are differences between Singapore and Israel. I don't mean just the obvious differences. You know, for example, as states, Singapore and Israel are much the same age. 74 years for Israel, 57 for Singapore, so we are in the same generation of states. But the Jewish nation is three millennia old, while the Singapore nation is still a work in progress. Uh, and, I, and of course, I don't mean the differences of interest that always exist even between the closest of partners. I mean a difference of mindset, a difference in the method and manner in which we have utilized the agency and collaborated, the agency without that even the smaller states are never without to bring us where we are both today. And perhaps I can best illustrate what I mean by an anecdote. I was a frequent visitor to Israel before the pandemic upset all my travel routines. But now that travel is returning to normal, my Israeli friends be warned, I'm coming again. On a couple of my visits uh, a few years ago, I encountered by chance university students from Singapore in Tel Aviv. They were there on an exchange program that gave them internships in Israeli startups. And all, of, and all of you know that Israel epitomizes the creative and innovative startup nation that Singapore still aspires to become. Over drinks, I asked these students what they found most difficult about their experiences in Israeli startups and what they found most enjoyable. And their answers were remarkably consistent. As interns, they were given some problem or another to deal with by the boss of the startup. Being good Singaporeans, they invariably began by asking for instructions. And as invariably, the impatient response from their Israeli boss was, if I knew what to do, I don't need you. So don't bother me, go figure it out yourself. And if it doesn't work, go figure out something else. 
Bingo Singaporeans, they initially found this very disconcerting. Uh, but Bingo Singaporeans, once they got over the initial shock, they rose in the challenge and found the experience liberating and enjoyable. This told me something about how Israelis and Singaporeans exercise agency. At the root of Israeli creativity is the willingness to take risks and deal with risks by bold improvisation. This is understandable given the environment in which Israel exists. When Israel makes mistakes, they are usually mistakes of action without adequate long-term planning. On the other hand, Singapore excels, excels at long-term planning. But I fear that because of the very success of our long-term planning, our mistakes are usually those of excessive caution. We are moving into a global strategic environment of greater uncertainty where not everything can be planned, not all plans will unfold as anticipated, and where the biggest risk is trying to avoid all risks. This is perhaps the most important thing Singapore can learn from our collaboration with Israel. And perhaps also Israel learned from collaboration with Singapore. Perhaps Israel needs to become a little more like Singapore, and Singapore a little more like Israel, just a little bit. Now, thank you for listening to me. Thank you, Chairman Bilahari. It was good hearing your thought-provoking comments. Uh, now, our second speaker, uh, Mr. Roy Zur, will share his views on innovation and collaboration from the perspective of a technopreneur. Thank you, Edmund. And uh, thanks, Chairman Bilahari. I think uh, very, uh, very interesting talk. Definitely didn't make a fool of yourself and uh, very enlightening. Uh, I mean, uh, I think some of the things I'd like to, I wanted to cover also directly connect to what you discussed. So uh, just um, first, it's, it's really a great honor to be, to be here in this, uh, in this discussion, in a way also representing the Israeli side, the Israeli industry at least, as we have also a representative of the Israeli government and diplomatic side. It's always a, a great pleasure to be part of these uh, events of Singapore and Israel relationship. Now that the skies are open again, um, I am uh, more than excited to visit Singapore soon again after almost two years that I haven't been uh, physically in Singapore. So uh, I, I think, the, as, uh, as Chairman Bilhari uh, mentioned, uh, I think that um, it's important to see the differences and the similarities between the countries in the context of innovation. And I don't want to repeat some of the things that were mentioned here, but we know a lot of the similarities about, um, you know, small countries in a region that, well, maybe Israel in a, in a less stable region, but in regions that could be hostile or instable from, uh, uh, from time to time over the years. Uh, fairly young countries, regardless of the history of the Jewish people and the Jewish nation as a country, country Israel is uh, still fairly, fairly young. Uh, Singapore is a bit younger, but, um, but if we compare this to other nations globally, we are talking about fairly young countries. Um, and also the fact that both countries are, um, in, in its essence, uh, in, in the region, in the physical space, have um, not a lot of significant natural resources. You know, there are, of course, uh, access to the... Singapore has great access as a, to the, to the um, 
trade uh, routes, etc. And Israel had it has its own advantages. But if you think about um, con- other countries with significant natural resources, whether it's oil or other uh, physical resources, both countries are not known for this. And for countries like small and young and with lack of resources and in hostile environment in some sometimes, please, um, we understand that it needs to be something else to allow these countries and these nations to um, prosper and to succeed in their, uh, in their growth and their long-term mission. And that actually directly connects to the concept of innovation and ingenuity. Because when you think about the resource, the main resource that both countries, both nations have, we are talking about the human resource. This is the main resource that both countries have. Um, And the fact that both countries were based their uh, growth and prosper on human achievements, on education and on science and on innovation and ingenuity. And, And this is in a way also what we celebrate today this partnership, because this partnership uh, and the the concept of this uh, uh, joint collaboration is around innovation in research and development between Singapore and Israel. This is in the, in the words of the, of the, of the, this collaboration, right? So it's amazing that in, in this uh, 25 years, you know, so many um, new opportunities was created, new products, new technologies, um, some, some were pre- purely focused on research, but most of them were also implemented on a customer scale. So also create a change in the market. It's not just for research, for the sake of research, but it's research for the sake of getting our lives better, whether it's in uh, different fields of science and education and technology. Um, and, and we created together new products and new markets. And um, that's also what we are celebrating today. And we also shortened the time, right, to bring this uh, new innovations and enhanced products and enhanced technologies into the market. So maybe some things, um, instead of taking much, much longer, the fact that both nations uh, and, and teams from both countries collaborated allowed us to achieve what we achieved in a shorter period of time. And again, eventually to, to contribute to the greater good and to the success of, uh, of society, of science, of education, um, et cetera. Uh, and as uh, uh, Mr. Chairman said, there are also some significant differences, right, between the, between the countries. Um, Singapore, in, 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 in many ways, is more uh, methodical, process-oriented, uh, obsessed with quality, cautious, um, sometimes maybe too cautious, but in, in many cases, cautious is necessary. While the Israeli side, and again, of course, it's a stereotypical thing. Uh, there are different, there are some in Singapore and some in Israel that do not follow the stereotype. But in general, the Israeli side is a bit more chaotic, um, uh, risk-taking, maybe sometimes without thinking about the, the consequences. Um, sometimes it allows us to be a bit more creative and very much results-driven. And I also like the, the, the example about the experience of, of, uh, of interns in Israeli startup. And it was also as an entrepreneur and a CEO of a startup, I'll mention this with hundreds of people today uh, in our company. I think it reflects very well 
what the chairman said very well of the cultural concept. And, and I think in a way it also starts in, um, in the military. And I'll address this in, in, in a few minutes, but just as, a, as from my experience, when you're even a young soldier in Israel, it's very, um, you're being encouraged to um, express your opinion, to disagree, to, um, to provoke in a way sometimes the discussion, the argument. And uh, in some ways, I found myself, even as a young officer in the Israeli army, I served there for about 10 years, but as a young officer, um, for example, when we needed to send, when the unit needed to send someone for a discussion in the United States, in D.C., with uh, senior officials from other um, uh, security and intelligence agency of the U.S., uh, they sent me, a 20-year-old. Uh, and I was not a unique case because I was the one that was actually involved in doing what, you know, doing the work. So it makes sense to send me. And I think that in Israel, it's much less about uh, hierarchy and the formal structure and uh, the, um, the rules, less about rules and more about guidelines in general. We are not really good with rules in Israel. They're really good with guidelines and we find our rules within these guidelines. And I think the, the difference here is not, what we celebrate is not the difference and also not the similarities, but we're celebrating the complementing side of it. We're celebrating exactly how when both nations collaborate and with, where teams from both countries collaborate, they can achieve what they can achieve because in some ways, and I really liked uh, what Mr. Chemin said about, you know, in a way Israel maybe needs to be a bit more like Singapore and Singapore a bit more like Israel is that exactly when you create this collaboration between the two teams or teams from the two countries and two nations, you find exactly the whole that is bigger or greater than the sum of its parts. The Singapore side brings the, the process, the, the, the method, the focus on quality, sometimes the risk averse and the focus on cautious. The Israeli side brings maybe the more chaotic side, the results driven, the less about focusing on the rules and finding ways to, to get things done. And then together we achieve something that is, that is greater. And this is also the reason when I started my, uh, my, my last company, Cybint, I had a few companies in my uh, entrepreneurial experience, but my last company, Cybint, that was recently also um, acquired and joined forces with another company, I'll mention it soon, um, I actually established a company in Singapore. I registered the company in Singapore. Not, not at first. At first, it was an Israeli company. And um, we had some customers that the concept of the company, when I decided to start it, um, so in my military experience, one of the things I did in the cybersecurity and cyber intelligence unit, um, unit A200, one of my main responsibilities there was um, focusing on um, taking cadets from high schools in Israel and reskilling them into cyber intelligence, into cybersecurity in a matter of three to six months because the compulsory, the mandatory service in Israel is fairly short, is um, two to three years, it depends um, on specific positions. And um, in the military, I had to take, uh, we had to take people from high school because that's the compulsory service, that's how it works. And in a matter of a few months, make them ready to work for 
a leading cyber intelligence and cybersecurity unit, right? So how, how do you do this without sending someone to university for years of degree? You have to find ways to accelerate their education. So this is what I did in the military. And then when I, uh, in the industry, I thought, why not replicating this concept and replicating this model to, um, uh, to the industry? And that's when I started my, uh, this company called Cybint uh, under the concept of cyber intelligence, Cybint. Um, it's, um, the idea was that we'll create these solutions that can take people from the industry with no significant experience or no experience at all and make them either cyber savvy or even cybersecurity professionals in a short period of time. I started a company in Israel and we started to have customers in different places. And then I was invited to Singapore. I was invited to Singapore. It was um, 2019 or late 2018 um, by NTUC Learning Hub uh, to a conference. And one of the interesting, uh, I think it was in 2019. And one of the interesting parts back then, I mean, I, I visited Singapore once back then, but not for business. And I was not very familiar with the Singapore culture and work culture and business culture. And I was, when I was invited there to a conference um, at the NQC Learning Hub uh, uh, um, auditorium there, and I presented to a very large group of people and I saw the, the hunger for knowledge and I saw the love for education of um, the people there. And, and, I think that, and again, I'm, I'm talking as a foreigner, right? I'm not a Singaporean, but looking from, from the outside into Singapore, I saw a country that understand the value of education, that, that really see the value of education and high quality education and skills. And in a way, starting a company that is in the intersection of cybersecurity and education, I thought, well, this is actually a place that understand the value of innovation in education as well. Not just because uh, sometimes people think about education as, as something that is a bit, you know, tra more traditional, but there are innovations in education as well. And after this, this conference, that conference in, with NTUC Learning Hub, which also back afterwards signed and became our first partner in Singapore. And, and we are still, by the way, partnering. And together with NQC Learning Hub, I think we trained more than 10,000 people in Singapore. Um, I don't have the exact numbers, but more than 10,000 people for sure. Um, and that's amazing, by the way. And um, NQC Learning Hub connected us also uh, to some of their um, counterparts and peers in the government, organizations like IMBA, organizations like IBF. And then I also learned that uh, about the support of the Singapore government and government entities and NGOs as well in, um, in education. The, the government was actually funding and sponsoring. I know it's, it's for you, it sounds trivial, but it's not because I'm also working in many other countries around the world and in the US and it's not that trivial. The country, the government understand the value of education and sponsor education and provide the means and the ability to do this. And that, by the way, this is also a very strong accelerator for innovation. And, um, and I, was, I was surprised to find the support of these organizations. And we got the support of IMDA, including sponsoring and, and funding students, and IBF, including sponsoring financial institutions and financial professionals. And 
Then I was introduced also to the industry and I met some officials at UOB, uh, United Overseas Bank, and they were also excited about education. And then I found out that not only NTUC Learning Hub and IMDA and IBF, but also large enterprise from Singapore are also very um, excited about innovation in education. And that was for me a, a very um, interesting experience learning about Singapore. And after a few meetings in Singapore, I said, I have to actually establish my company in Singapore. It makes a lot of sense for me to actually register the company there. And I started a process and, and with one of my colleagues back then, who was uh, an Israeli general, uh, general retired Udi Shani, who was the former head of C4I, also the uh, chief director of the Israeli Defense uh, Ministry at, at, at some point. He introduced me to some Singaporean officials and, um, and I met a person, his name is Mr. Tan Ti Hao. He was also the permanent secretary of the National Development and uh, the Ministry of Home Affairs and, and others and commissioner of the Inland Revenue of Singapore. And back then, um, he, he until now also represented like, um, like a fund that, um, that decided to invest in my company. So I raised money in Singapore. And so my entire experience with Singapore was an amazing experience. So in a way, I would say that without Singapore and without the Singaporean support from the industry, from the government, from investors, I couldn't bring my company to where it is today. And the company today, uh, what was Cybint and now what is um, part of Thrive DX, is already globally almost 2,000 people focusing on reskilling the workforce, upskilling the industry, establishing partnership with universities around the world, with enterprise around the world. But for me, the journey started in Singapore. For me, the journey started in Singapore because Singapore was the first to believe in this, in this mission. And, um, and, and for this, I'm, I'm, I'm forever grateful, of course. And also that's why I'm so excited when I'm invited to these um, events and that we are celebrating Singapore-Israel, uh, Singapore-Israel relationship. And um, when I saw the invitation to this one, I actually looked at my uh, small library. Fortunately, I don't have a big one. Uh, most of the books are digital. But, um, but I found a book that in my second visit to Singapore, and I, I actually have it here with me, uh, the book that I was uh, uh, given uh, about hard truths. I, I know it's like, it's uh, flipping it because of the mirror image, but um, and, and I think that um, I, I have to say, I haven't read all of it, but I read a few chapters of it. And, um, and, and, and in a way, you know, I've learned a lot about, about kind of like the idea behind Singapore. And, um, and, and I don't know if you're aware of it, but today, I, I believe you are aware of it, but maybe I will emphasize this today, the uh, Singapore, is more than a country, is a concept as well. So in Israel, our current prime minister, Naftali um, Bennett, he actually, before he was elected, and I'm not getting into the complex political situation in Israel, but before he was elected or before he assumed this position, then uh, he actually called his entire financial plan, economic plan to Israel, the Singapore plan. That's the name, the Singapore plan. And the idea behind that is how we, Israel, can become more like Singapore in, in, in different aspects. 
And, um, and today it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's a known fact that Singapore is actually leading in many, in many aspects. And actually Israel in some ways is behind. So um, I think that um, it depends on what, but uh, definitely in, in, in science and quality of education, I think Singapore is definitely the top. Um, and I think that this is also an opportunity for us as Israelis to learn, uh, to learn from Singapore. And this is exactly where it's uh, complementing. You know, in a way, Israel supported Singapore in its first years, and Singapore is still supporting Israel as well through the years. And I think now maybe is the time, you know, when, uh, when we also learn a lot, from, uh, a lot from Singapore. And a few things kind of like to, to finalize, uh, to, to summarize the, my part is that, as I said, because my company is focusing on cybersecurity and education, also in the context of Singapore, a lot of the co collaboration with Singapore today is around cybersecurity. And um, I think if it, we go back to the history of Israel and Singapore and the collaboration around uh, defense and uh, the military collaboration as well, in a way, when we think about how the world evolved and also the warfare, I think the cyber warfare evolves, we understand that now the two countries, the two nations are also collaborating in this new space, the cyberspace. So it's not just... Uh, the, uh, the sea, the land, the air, but also the cyberspace. And in this cyberspace, as a, as a company that represents cybersecurity education and cybersecurity innovation, we see that Singapore understand it, understands it. And that Singapore understands that um, the cyberspace is another field in which we have to be superior to our adversaries, whether they are criminals or government-led organizations or even terror organizations, because it's the basis for economic stability. It's the basic for political stability. It's the basis for uh, saving people's lives and infrastructure and critical infrastructure. And, um, and for that, I have to say, from working with many different countries today, my company, um, North America, Europe, different parts of Asia Pacific and Southeast Asia, in that case, I believe that Singapore, its industry and its government, um, leading at least in the level of uh, uh, understanding the problem and the necessity to solve this problem together. And I'm sure also that this collaboration, uh, the Singapore-Israel you know, innovation and R&D collaboration um, should and will also support cybersecurity innovation and defense innovation because, uh, because this is a critical part of keeping our country safe and also a critical part of innovation and uh, research and development. So I think that's, um, I didn't have a planned speech, but I kind of like uh, thought about sharing my, uh, my thoughts. So these, these are my thoughts about the collaboration. And of course, uh, later in this session, I'm happy to address any questions around that. Thank you again for inviting me. Thank you very much, Roy. It's a pleasure to listen to your engaging experiences about innovation and collaboration from the military and private sector uh, private sectors. So uh, like what Roy mentioned, uh, he welcomes questions. So if you have questions, please feel free to type your questions uh, and address it to MEI events and we'll be able to answer them subsequently. And finally, uh, we have Ambassador Kani who will share with us his experiences uh, as a diplomat 
in terms of innovation and collaboration. Ambassador, the time is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much, Edmund. Um, good morning in Israel. Good afternoon in Singapore. I'm, uh, I'm actually on leave, so I join you uh, from the south of Israel at the moment, from a small village where I grew up. Um, so it's uh, nice to uh, be um, connected to Singapore this way until I come back from my uh, vacation. Um, and um, indeed, we're celebrating 25 years for CIRD, for our bilateral uh, industrial R&D fund that was um, um, started operation in 1997. Um, if I wanted to put um, sort of a headline to my remarks, I would, uh, I would try to do something from startup nation to unicorn nation to centaur nation, and I will get back to it uh, in a in, in few minutes because I think it's, it's, it's important to our uh, uh, techies and, and, and economists. And of course, also for us in the diplomatic service, um, where we have to do our part. Now, the, the fund started at 1997. It was um, only four years um, since the government of Israel started what we call at the time Yozma. It was uh, Yozma means initiative in Hebrew, and that was the government program for uh, high-tech greenhouses. Um, and we started in 1993 um, because there was a need. There was a need to help the, uh, the industry, the tech industry. Um, and it was also, um, mind you, a um, few years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And we had a lot, a lot of uh, people who came from the Soviet Union to Israel. Uh, with technical skills, with scientific skills, and there were not enough jobs for them. So we needed to find a way how to employ them and use their talents. Now I was looking this morning uh, for the uh, definition of the OECD for innovation. Uh, and I read, an innovation is the implementation of a new or significantly improved product, good or service or process, a new marketing method, or a new organizational method in business practices, workplace organization, or external relations. So there is even something for Bilhari and myself when they managed to include external relations. So even uh, ambassadors can feel a little bit comfortable when talking about, uh, about innovation. But to me, the emphasis should be technology. We're talking about innovation in technology because there could be a lot of innovation. Anyone who is, is, is uh, starting, uh, um, you know, whatever, uh, a noodle uh, stall is, 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 is innovating in one way or another, taking initiative. Um, so as I said, there was a need for government um, in involvement. And in Israel, we follow a little bit what we had already with the U US. We had the fund with the US. We have two funds with the US. One was called BIRD, the other one BSF. But BIRD, from BIRD, we came to the idea of having CERD um, for a, a, a bilateral fund uh, that will support uh, joint research in industrial R&D. With the US, we have also BSF. That's more academic. Um, 
cooperation. Now, investment in R&D, it, there is so much you can say about it and there's, uh, I think everybody understands the importance of it. Um, I, I just want to say, to allude to an interesting fact in Israel that I think some people are not aware of it. Um, if you look at the uh, published data, now you see that Israel is still investing four and a half to four point eight percent of GDP in civilian R and D. Okay, I'm talking just civilian, not talking about defense R and D. And this is probably the highest percentage in the OECD. But it's important to know that by today, and I mentioned 1993, but today, and it goes for several years now, most of the investment is private; it's not government investment. And most of the investment is foreign, in fact. This is where we come as a foreign service trying to encourage uh, uh, venture capital to flow in Israel. And, and uh, I was involved with that uh, along the years uh, quite, quite, quite a lot. And why is that? Because there is so much demand for investment in Israel. And therefore, we as a government don't have to invest the amount um, that we used to invest in, in, in the 90s, and we can use the money for, um, for other uh, practices. Um, I mentioned Startup Nation, I mentioned Unicorn Nation. Um, it, it's known that there is many tech uh, unicorns in Israel. I think the current figure of uh, last year, 2021, was 49 unicorns. Unicorns meaning a company with a valuation of over 1 billion US dollars. And um, 49 unicorns, tech unicorns, is uh, in Israel is, is more than all of Europe put together. Sounds strange, but it's a fact. The interesting fact is that uh, the COVID years, we out of uh, COVID, I mean, it's still with us, but we, we, we know how to live with it by now. Um, but COVID-19 uh, proved that actually it was not that a bad thing uh, for the tech industry in small countries. And in tech, it was demonstrated that you can be global everywhere and from everywhere. And people could run the businesses from the kitchen uh, table the same way we do it by Zoom. So a lot of things changed. And we have seen, in fact, that the year 2020 was a record year in terms of venture capital investment in Israel, and 2021 was even better. So when the entire um, global economy was suffering, I mean, the rich people didn't suffer, of course, but the, the, the economy as, uh, as a whole suffered. Actually, the, uh, the tech industry in Israel was booming and was going from strength to strength. So this is something um, to bear in mind. And here I want to come back to Unicorn and, and Centaur Nation. Um, I think what we have seen in the last uh, several years is not without risk. Um, and with the uh, increase of uh, interest rate, um, um, I think investors um, already changing their taste and uh, unicorn is, 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 is not enough and investors would like to see uh, companies not just valuation based on uh, hope and image, etc., but also based on, on, on the revenues and income. And we in Israel, being a small country, have to understand that venture capital is like a cloud it's overing above, I mentioned, most of the investment is coming from abroad. And the cloud can be shifted away with the wind. 
So this is a risk we have to we have to bear in mind, and we have to find the ways to be creative and constantly creative in order to offer enough deal flows and enough innovation for the for the investment to come in and to grow into into businesses. So this is I'm, I'm not going to say this is a warning, but this is something that we have to be uh, aware of. Um, now I want to say a few things <laughs> about uh, about culture and society. It was mentioned um, before by uh, the two previous uh, speakers, by uh, my friend Bill Harry and by Roy as well. And and to me, and this is my take of what are some of the characteristic of uh, of the Israeli society of Israelis that are. At, at, conducive for, um, for, for innovation. One thing is that risk-taking, or at least not being risk-averted. Um, um, this is, I think, one of the strong characteristics of the Israeli society and the Israelis. Um, second is uh, think global. Uh, being a small place in Israel is a small country with a small market. I Time and again, uh, see that the uh, entrepreneurs, the tech entrepreneurs, they don't think of making it big in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem. They think of making it big in Silicon Valley, in New York, in Boston, in China, in Europe, in Germany, or in the UK. So this is very important. And I see it is already uh, within um, the culture of, of, of the Israelis thinking uh, globally. Third, of course, it's being bold, or as the uh, Hebrew word chutzpah, chutzpah means, and it involves with uh, challenging of authority. And we are very good in challenging of, of challenging of authority, and you could see it everywhere in um, all sectors and uh, all levels. But it also goes with uh, with uh, some problematic aspects to it. So this is not something that I think that I would recommend to adopt by other nations. And I don't think it's something that it is easy to adopt because it's got to do with the culture. So I'm just saying, you know, what, what I see among my people. Another element which I think I see among uh, my Israeli friends is that people have a sense of purpose. This is something I don't see in many other Western uh, countries uh, among young people. Israelis have a sense of purpose. This got to do uh, with our history and with our geostrategic challenges. Geostrategic challenges is a code name for being surrounded by enemies for many years. Um, another element is of course necessity. Um, necessity and the necessity um, with severe challenges require to find solutions. If everything is delivered to, your, to the table, there's no need to find a solution. If, if life is very, very comfortable, uh, there's no necessity to develop new uh, solution. Um, and of course, another element that this is something that one cannot uh, overlook is a sound and advanced defense industries. The uh, Israeli um, rather robust defense industries are a constant source for, uh, for innovation that spill over into the uh, civilian uh, sphere. 
Now we are less good at long-term planning, but as we uh, celebrated the holiday of Shavuot, in Shavuot last week was the, was the holiday that we commemorate um, um, the receiving of the Torah. It is known that the Israelites upon receiving the Torah said in Hebrew, meaning we do and we listen. This is very odd because usually you should listen and then you do, but the Israelite already thousands of years ago said, we'll do and we listen. First we do, then we listen. It, it's stuck to our culture and there's no way to get rid of it. Now, um, the last point I'd like to make is um, about Israel and, 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 and Singapore. Um, uh, Billy Ari, um, spoke about it in, uh, in a much more eloquent way that I can uh, repeat. So I'm just gonna say uh, a few things, few, few short uh, remarks. Um, I think that due to the uh, joint uh, history of our special and I would rather say, I can say intimate relation between our countries and some similarities, uh, the level of trust between the two government is very high. And that allows setting up the fund in 1997, and it continued to allow very close cooperation. Um, you look what kind of cooperation countries have, and you will see that the level of trust dictates the level of cooperation. And there is no way um, uh, to separate those two things if you want to have uh, a very strong scientific and um, and research uh, cooperation, you need to have a very high level of trust. And this is something uh, that has been built over the years. And I think we all enjoy it now. Um, for the fund itself, for CERD, um, we've seen now um, a new momentum to the fund. And this new momentum started about three years ago. Um, one element is a focus, a new focus. Um, I suggested to the fund, to the board of the fund, uh, to do a rethinking and to refocus and to choose uh, two to three, four, maybe subject of focus for, for, uh, for joint project. Because we, we, we have seen, I've seen in the embassy that um, uh, the, the number of application was dwindling down. And I felt that, the, uh, that we lost momentum after more than two decades. Um, um, I'm, I'm very happy that the board on both sides uh, agreed to my suggestion and we have now a focus. One of them um, um, it was mentioned by uh, Edmund before was the, um, was the conference last week in, in Tel Aviv that was focused on, on, on food tech and agri-tech. This is one of the uh, focal points of, of the fund for, for the years to come. Um, another, another change in the fund was increase in the size of the grants. And the third was the increase in the percentage of support uh, for every project. That was, I think, necessary in order to make uh, the fund more attractive uh, to researchers and to industrialists. And, uh, and I'm happy to say that this is um, a good example. Uh, <laughs> Not too many examples, but this is a good example that sometimes uh, even governments do good things. Um, as both countries now, um, 
let me say something like that. Uh, both countries, Singapore and Israel, will most likely remain small countries, small nations. And, and therefore, we both separately must punch way above our weight in order to progress. Um, it is clear to me that if we don't punch above our weight, we will just slide back because of the very, very severe global competition. Uh, the competition is fierce and we need to keep on uh, uh, doing extra, extra uh, bold effort. And one major way to do so is through tech innovation. Uh, we simply don't have the sheer size in Israel, I think also in Singapore, the sheer size and the number just to lay back and count on our uh, steady growth based on our local market. It's just not going to work. It never worked. And we have to we have to be bold, aggressive, and and global. There's no other way. And 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 tech innovation and tech implementation is a very very important element of how to how to how to go there. Um, and you know, looking from what I see as an ambassador in the past uh, almost three years. Um, I see that uh, the more good things coming our way, and I wish the next 25 years uh, to be even much better. And I think there is uh, there is a good reason to believe that this this would be the case. Um, and by that, I just want to thank you all, all participants, to joining us today, and many thanks to MEI. Uh, it's dedicated staff to you, Edmond, and of course to the energetic chairman, my friend uh, Bilahari. So thank you all. And here I'm just going to repeat what Bilahari said. If you have any uh, tech-specific question, please don't ask me. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you very much, Ambassador Kani. We we appreciate your very perceptive comments about Israel, the characteristics as well as the developments to keep a lookout for. And thank you also for implementing measures to improve the, the use of the, the funds for the foundation. So thank you. Now we have time for questions and we would like to invite our participants to type your questions into the chat box. You can address it to MEI events. We already have some questions, right? So firstly, um, one question will for this is uh, open to all our speakers, all three of our speakers. It's related to the geopolitical situation about how there is friction between US and China and a possible digital decoupling. How do you foresee that impacting Singapore and Israel? Maybe we'll have uh, Chairman Bilhari start the ball rolling first with your your views about the challenges between China and US and leading possibly to a decoupling and how it's gonna impact both countries. Sorry, uh, yeah, Chairman, we need to. Okay, I'll, I'll give it a shot, at least the first go. Uh, by the way, Roy, Udi Shani is a good friend of mine. Give him my regards and tell him I'll be around. I will, <laughs> Okay. I will, I will, yeah. Udi is great. Okay. Yeah. Look, you know, somewhere um, maybe 
six, seven, eight, nine years ago, if you are in the same business as uh, Sagi and me, and you read all the usual journals, you find, I found a very strange thing. You know, people, commentators, academics were, were talking about the return of great power politics. And I was very puzzled because who the hell said he ever went away in the first place, you know? We went through a very short and historically anomalous period, say between the end of the Cold War or the end of the Soviet Union, 1991, and the beginning of the global financial crisis, when there seemed to be only one dominant power, one dominant system, uh, and, and, the, and as some silly academic put it, the end of history. Well, history is back with a vengeance. In fact, it never went away. Great power competition is a fact of international relations. And we and small countries like Israel and Singapore just have to learn to live with it. Uh, it is no different in principle from what we have had to live with for centuries. Even before there was an Israel, before there was a Singapore. Right? But there is one characteristic of US-China competition that is new in history. You know, it's become very common to talk about US-China competition as a new Cold War. This is a very silly and stupid analogy. The Cold War between the US and the Soviet Union was competition between two different systems. The US and China, by contrast, are vital and ir irreplaceable parts of a single system. And they, are, and they are connected to each other and the rest of us, to Singapore, to Israel, to Europe, to, uh, to every country in the world, by supply chains of a scope, of a density, of a complexity, never before seen in human history. And this is what distinguishes 21st century interdependence from earlier periods of interdependence. Now, I think it's very unlikely uh, that given the complexity, given the scope of these supply chains, it's very, very unlikely that they can bifurcate into two complete different, completely different systems. Again, not at any cost that either of the two principles are willing to bear, whether they know it or not. Now, there will be bifurcation in some specific domains, and some of those domains will be technological domains. In fact, you already see it happen. But I'll give you a, but I don't think, you know, the internet, for example, is largely bifurcated. Uh, but largely it's not entirely. And there will be further bifurcation, particularly in technological domains with uh, national security implications. But I don't think even there it is going to bifurcate entirely. Like, let me give you just one example. We all know now that supply chain, uh, that semiconductors are, a serious Chinese vulnerability. Semiconductors at the high end of uh, a very uh, serious Chinese vulnerability. And it's going to be very difficult for them to, to address that vulnerability because all the most crucial parts of the semiconductor supply chain, and that's one of the most complex supply chains, are held by the United States and its allies and its partners and its friends like Taiwan. All right? On the other hand, on the other hand, uh, China is 40% of the global semiconductor market. And you cannot possibly cut your, 
your own companies, the companies of your allies, your friends, your partners, from 40% of the market without doing them serious damage. And that's a very different kind of competition. It's not, right? And it's a more complicated kind of comp competition. Now, it's going to make life more complicated for countries like Israel and Singapore, which are part of this global system. But in complexity, there is agency. We should not forget that. The complexity creates possibilities. The simple binary competition between the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, and the US was not really very complicated. It was very dangerous, but it was not very complicated. And the choices of binaries, A or B, even like Singapore, when you pretended to be non-aligned, we knew which side we were on. But in this new competition within a single system, it's more complicated, it's gonna cause more headaches for us, but it also creates more possibilities. It gives agency to us. I'll stop here. Thank you, Chairman Bilahari, for your a very pragmatic, at the same time, hopeful perspective. On... I'm never hopeful, you know, I'm just realistic. <laughs> realistic, okay. But in a way, the possibilities, uh, I think, will, will be beneficial for both Singapore and Israel. If we have the brains to see them and the courage to take them. Yes, indeed. And uh, Ambassador Kani, would, would you like to share your views? Well, um, on the wall behind me, you could see uh, there is a photo of me many years ago in the 90s riding a tricycle in the Forbidden City in, in Beijing. Um, I ride different, different bicycles these days, but I learned then that one should never underestimate China and the uh, ability of China to, uh, to move forward and acquire more and more uh, uh, capabilities. Um, so, so I believe it, at the end of the day, China will uh, be able to find solution to, uh, to its tech uh, weaknesses. But I also uh, um, know, and this is something I think everybody knows, that the United States is Israel's closest allies and about to remain so uh, for years to come. And as, um, as Ambassador Bilhari said, I, I found it also, I agree with him totally, I found it very unlikely that we're going to see... Um, um, a total technological uh, decoupling. Uh, it, it just doesn't make just doesn't make sense. The cost is enormous. So we'll see you know, separate systems. Some separate system already exists. We'll see more of that. Uh, but, but I also don't think that this is the wish of the uh, the two superpowers, uh, China and the U.S., to 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 to, to drive into uh, a, a total uh, decoupling. I think. Both uh, can, can lose from that, um, and both have uh, much to gain from uh, keep on uh, trading and, and working together wherever, wherever is possible. And I think it was said by the two superpowers themselves. I don't have to, I don't have to guess here. Um, well, of course, you asked what happens. Uh, we'll have to leave uh, with this uh, situation. I mean, uh, Israel is a small country. Uh, we know that we're a small country and we have to be agile. 
um, flexible, sometimes smart, and uh, sometimes we just have to, uh, to, to improvise. But um, I think it, 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 there is a potential that it will be more complicated to countries in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, it will be more complicated to navigate than it will be for, uh, for Israel when uh, it's clear to uh, all involved um, that uh, for Israel, the U.S. is its closest allies for so many reasons. Thank you, Ambassador Kani, for sharing your views. It, this, earlier this afternoon, I had, I had a dis discussion with an Israeli cybersecurity company that was invested by Tamase. And interestingly, they have a cloud-based cybersecurity solution for AWS. And now they are developing, in the process of launching one, for the China cloud-based um, users. So on this note about technology, I think it's timely that we have Roy share his views about digital decoupling and his thoughts on the impact on US and uh, the impact on Israel and Singapore. Over to you, Roy. Yeah, I think, look, from, um, from the industry perspective, at least, and because we are specifically, in a way, uh, I'm representing a cybersecurity company. Um, of course, there are um, challenges in the... Um, uh, if I'm going back to the question about the challenges of, of U.S.-China, okay, first, just to, to, address, uh, to address this. Um, I think that, um, that it is a challenge, you know, it, it is a challenge because uh, when, you, uh, when we work with sensitive aspects in, in innovation and technology like cybersecurity, um, and it directly connects to um, aspects of national defense and international defense, then um, it's very difficult to be neutral um, because none of the sides is um, necessarily accepting you as neutral. And even if it's not, a problem, I'm not representing anything political or government oriented, but even the markets, the financial markets in the US may react in some aspects to things you do with their non-allies uh, in a negative way and vice versa. And I think that uh, at least the solution that we found as, as Thrive DX is um, first that we focus only on, on defense aspects and we are not doing anything uh, offensive in cybersecurity. And at least that, that in a way allows us to be a bit less uh, or a bit more neutral in a way because we are not helping anyone to attack anyone and we are not teaching anyone how to attack anyone. We are not focusing on causing any damage but we focus on protecting uh, mostly uh, industries, critical infrastructure, et cetera, from each other's attacks. So in a way, maybe at least that's what we tell ourselves that we actually contribute to the stability. Um, uh, but but there, are, there are still complexities there. So that's for, the, for, the, you know, for my comment on, on that aspect. And I don't know if there was another part for the question that I missed, but. Uh... Okay, thank, thank you, Roy. Uh, I think you answered the question. Um, there was this question about how do we get talents, right? Because talents are is scarce for both cybersecurity and also for foreign service. So this question, we'd like to open it to uh, all three of our speakers. In your views, in this age where we have a shortage of talents, how best can we attract talents to both foreign service as well as cybersecurity? 
maybe Roy can continue and then yeah, yeah. maybe maybe I'll start from from the industry I would not talk about how to attract talent to to government or national service and for just because it's not my field of expertise but I would say that from um, from the industry perspective there are a lot of different things to say but I will focus just on one thing you know if I had to choose one thing and in the US it's uh, I would say the definition is DEI diversity equity and inclusion we can just use the word diversity and I think that this is something that we learn more and more and the learn the world learns more and more about this is that you find the talent in the most unexpected places and I think that uh, our our kind of like understanding of what is talent and what is the process that talent needs to go through before we bring it to our company or organization or our agency is different because I think and I'm 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 a big believer still in also the formal education and people that are investing their life in research and and start their career after many many years of research in the academy after doing their PhD etc but unfortunately this is not um this is not of course the majority now I don't know if unfortunately the the reality is that it the the majority of talent cannot go through this very rigorous process plus if there is a need for talent right now and right now for example in cybersecurity there are globally about 4 million unfilled jobs so we can't wait four, five, six, seven years to generate this talent in the regular course of process in university and research. And that is why we need to think about attracting talent and generating talent in, in different ways. And we can actually, in going back to the same example I gave with the Israeli military, Unit A200, the unit I come from, which is the biggest unit in the Israeli intelligence forces, is comprised mostly of 18 to 21 year olds coming out of high school. And it's still one of the most successful units. I don't know if they're in the world, but definitely in the region. Okay. Uh, from a technological perspective and intelligence perspective, the talent in this unit did not go through formal university education yet. And what I'm, what I'm saying here is that we need to attract talent um, in different stages of their career. And we need to be open to attract talent before their formal education and even without their formal education. And we need to be able also to provide them the, uh, the necessary hands-on skill-based training so they can do their work. And then we'll have in our organizations, we'll have people, some of them with more formal academic deep background and some with more hands-on skills-based background, and they will work well together. And once we, once people understand that it is possible that they can after three, six months or a bit, a bit less or a bit longer, they can actually start getting into this industry. Then you kind of like, you know, I'll say one more thing about this. You kind of like demystifying this concept. And, you know, I just came from a conference right now. I'm in Israel. I came from a conference in the U S from Atlanta. Uh, it was the nice conference, the national initiative of cybersecurity education in the U S the, the, con the title of the conference, the title of the entire conference, this is the big one, was Demystifying Cybersecurity. And I think we need to demystify, you know, work in tech or in innovation or in startups. It is possible for almost everyone 
to make the first step into that. And we need to be open for more diversity and to, to open our gates to more talent coming from different backgrounds. Thank you, Roy. And uh, Ambassador Kani, we welcome your views about how can we attract talents to foreign service? Well, the, the answer is very simple. You have to increase the pay, you increase the salary, you can attract more talented people. It's always was like that and still remains the same. Uh, the, the other element is that people have to feel that uh, what they do is important, that there is uh, importance to what they do. Uh, if you fail um, to demonstrate to people that what they do is important, they will go other places. So these are, these are the, two, uh, the two elements that attract talented people because talented people have, uh, have um, many options. I mean, uh, Roy was talking about the, the young people, um, the 18 to 21 years old uh, soldiers in, in, the, uh, in military intelligence. There's no need to attract them because they are recruited by law. So they are not attracted, they are driven. So there is no problem there. Uh, the, the, the challenge is how to keep them in the system into the 30s. That's, that's, that's the challenge. And again, I think it's the same. It's, in, in that case, it's, it's mostly a sense of purpose and people have to feel that what they do matter and important. And beyond that, it's just uh, higher pay. There's no, there's no other way. Thank you, Ambassador. So the two Ps, purpose and pay. Right, which will play significant uh, roles in bringing in talents. And uh, Chairman Bilahari, your thoughts on this? Well, for the Singapore Foreign Service, the issue is really not paid. Uh, I think we are paid. We are not paid as well as in some parts of the private sector, but we are paid certainly paid much better than the Israeli Foreign Service. And I often feel sorry for my friends there. They are really driven by a sense of purpose. Purpose. Right. I think um, for us, the challenge is to create a workplace that is that enhances a sense of purpose. And you have to start doing that by creating a workplace in which even the youngest officer, the most junior officer, uh, believes that his bosses value his services, trust him to do what is right. I mean, he'll make mistakes from time to time. Uh, if you have a workplace where everybody is being worried about thrown under the bus, you're not going to be able to attract talent. Because in foreign service, in this kind of work, you're going to make mistakes for sure. You know, most of the factors in the world, if you're a small country, are not in your control. And you are working with imperfect intelligence, imperfect information, which changes. So in that kind of environment, the only way not to make a mistake is to do nothing, which is kind of fatal to a small country. Uh, but you have to create an environment where officers trust their superiors uh, to support them, even when they make mistakes, and not throw them under the bus. I think it's as simple as that. It's not a big deal. It's easy to say, rather, uh, but not easy to implement in practice. So trust and empowerment to provide a nurturing environment. Well, you. You it's not so much nurturing in a soft and cuddly way, you know. <laughs> no, you know, you know, stroke everybody, pat everybody in the head every five minutes and say you're doing well. You know, it can be a tough environment, mm. but yes. it must be one based on trust. 
trust. So you trust your boss to do the right thing by you, and the boss trusts you to do the right thing. Okay, thank you. And, and we have a question from Nadia, right? Uh, it's, it's a question about the future. Will a free trade agreement between Israel and Singapore be underway, considering collaborations between the two countries have been significantly long? This is from Nadia. And maybe, uh, Ambassador Kani, would you like to... Uh, yes, to be him. I'm a pensioner and Roy is from the private sector. Only, only Sagi can answer this. Okay, uh, FTA. It, can you repeat the question? I, I didn't get it. Okay, Nadia asked, will a free trade agreement between Israel and Singapore be underway? Will we have a free trade agreement soon, given that we have been collaborating for a significantly long period? Well, at, at the moment, there is down no negotiation on, on, on an FTA. And um, at the moment, there is no uh, strong demand on the part of the industry to promote such an agreement. And I think our uh, uh, trade relations are not suffering terribly because of the lack of such an agreement. Okay, thank you, Ambassador. And now uh, a question for Roy. Uh, which among Singapore and Israel has cyber laws more conducive to the innovation in cybersecurity, te cybersecurity technology? What intellectual, that's the first question, what intellectual give and take can happen between two countries in the field of cybersecurity laws? It's, a, it's an interesting question. And uh, cyber laws, also, uh, I study, uh, study law. I'm also a practicing lawyer. I'm not working as a lawyer today, but I, I did for a, for a short for a short time. Uh, I think in general, the problem of, I mean, there are many problems with laws and regulation, but uh, in general, the, the basic problem is a lot of time that it's lagging. And uh, because the, the legislative process and the, um, the regulation process is long, um, sometimes it takes years to make, uh, you know, to make progress while the cyber space is moving very, very fast. Um, so that's why you see a lot of time laws around cybersecurity, privacy, um, and aspects like this are um, lagging. So you have the problem, then the law is coming two, three years later, then the problem already shifted. The problem is already different. And then the law is not necessarily reflecting the problem or the regulation is not necessarily reflecting the problem. I think that in general, um, if you think about cybersecurity in a broader aspect, which includes data protection, data privacy, et cetera, then I would say that Singapore is more, I don't know if it's advanced, more advanced, but at least more um, um, on the privacy side, I would say. I don't know if it's more advanced, but definitely it, it's a, it's a, it has a broader um, coverage of uh, uh, privacy and privacy laws, uh, much more closer to the GDPR and the European approach than, uh, than in Israel. Although there are privacy laws in Israel, they're just um, not as uh, rigorous and, and, and not have the, the same coverage as, as the Singaporean one. So I think in data privacy and data protection on that sense, there are more, uh, uh, Singapore is a bit more advanced. On the, um, on the more tech side uh, of, of cybersecurity protection, I think maybe Israel has some, um, 
some some advantage there. But in general, as I said, I, I think that um, we haven't found a way to meet, make sure that, re- I mean, regulation is not moving in the pace of innovation, is not moving in the pace of um, technology. And unfortunately, this is something that um, we don't have a solution for that yet. Maybe Maybe somebody will come with a fast track solution for regulation, but because you need to take so many things in consideration and to consider so many different thoughts, et cetera, et cetera, then I would say that both countries are still behind the reality. Uh, and maybe every country, all countries are still behind the, the reality of cybersecurity and technology. Okay. Thank you, Roy. Uh, earlier on, Chairman Bilahari spoke about the evolving situation in the Middle East. We have a question here from one overseas uh, participant. Uh, he shared, he, he asked this question about how do you see the prospects of Israeli UAE scientific technical cooperation? What are the prospects of Israeli UAE scientific and technical cooperation? Um, Ambassador Kani, would you like to answer this very specific and interesting question? Well, I mean, the, um, the Abraham Accord, as it's, it's so-called, um, uh, was very important for us. That's, that's, that's uh, needless to say. Um, and opened for Israel uh, new avenues for cooperation in the region, uh, in the broader Middle East. <clears throat> and uh, I would say a centerpiece of, uh, of those accords with the, uh, with the agreement with the UAE, with the Emirates. Um, and we already uh, see um, scientific cooperation. We've seen uh, several agreements signed on, on, on joint investment in, um, in, in technology development and, and, and research. Um, and this is, goes to um, both uh, industrial R&D and also academic uh, cooperation. So these things are happening already. Uh, there is um, a rather substantial amount of money that is uh, about to be invested in this uh, cooperation. And um, this is, I think, not only important, of course, that that's important, but it's also uh, demonstrating to, uh, to other, other uh, uh, people and countries in the, uh, in the greater, larger Middle East that um, there is uh, much to gain uh, by uh, cooperating with Israel and that the, in fact, that the, um, I would say the majority of the Arab world is for it um, and not necessarily um, all leaders are free to move uh, forward. But I would say that um, the vast majority of uh, young people in the in the Arab world are, are I would say, in much favor of uh, working with uh, Israel on most uh, most elements. Um, so this is happening. To answer to the question, this is happening, and uh, we are very happy about it. Thank you, Ambassador Kani. And related to what you just shared, we have a comment from Fazlur Rahman said that um, how we have seen how the Abrahamic Accord has created some positive influence to promote mutual understanding and collaboration with some of the Arab countries. We have also seen some interfaith programs in UAE. And then he he also raised the 
about the possibility of leveraging on this technology partnership between Singapore and Israel, how it can actually include our local Singaporean Muslim community. And this can also provide a positive example to our neighboring countries. So his uh, command was put aside uh, the politics, let's collaborate on technology to benefit our collective humanity, peace and security. And looking ahead, we have a question from Bao Xuan who asked, who referenced uh, this growing trend of genome tech companies, how these companies have a global reach. And uh, he asked what is Roy's assess brief assessment of cyber risk of these ventures, right? Of disease screening and genealogy. What so I'm not, um, yeah, so I'm happy to cover, first there are probably better experts than me in the specific field of cybersecurity for uh, genome tech companies. I would say my, my two cents, whatever they were. Um, one, like every data-driven company, um, companies that focus on, on research and deep tech research are very sensitive to cybersecurity attacks because their most valuable asset is their data. Um, and this is, I mean, for many countries, the most valuable asset is their data, but this is, these are companies that are 100% data driven, right? Like what, whatever they have is the data. Uh, there, are, there are almost no other assets in, in these kind of uh, companies. So, and once the data is being jeopardized, um, then the entire company is being jeopardized. And uh, I think in that case, um, like data, other data-driven companies, they need to be um, over-cautious or over-sensitive about cybersecurity uh, in all aspects. Cybersecurity is not just technology. It's technology, processes, people, and need to implement it. One thing that, again, it's not my field of expertise, but from some research I read about the, about the topic is that there were some, and, and maybe that's more an academic research at this point, although there may be a, 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 a industry implementations, is that I, uh, I've read about aspects of actually injecting uh, computer viruses or malware into uh, DNA sequence. As I said, unfortunately, I am not the expert about the field, so I don't feel comfortable in talking, you know, uh, talking, explaining this, right? But I think that specifically about these type of companies, you could find risks in, in or kind of like incorporating or encoding or bringing um, different type of malware that will be hidden in DNA sequences. Um, this is something that fascinates me uh, but unfortunately, I'm not the expert to talk about that. Okay, th thank you. And, and now we have a question re related to IDF, right? About how IDF is a source of many entrepreneurs. So um, the question is, uh, how can SEF, what can, what can SEF learn about nurturing this attitude among constructs? I think Ambassador Kani spoke about sense of purpose, uh, being bold, right? Uh, so how can we adapt this and how can we encourage entrepreneurship among those enter entering the workforce in Singapore? Yeah. And maybe maybe I'll say a word. Oh, Roy, sorry. Yeah. Sure. Roy, please, please go ahead. No, just one, one, I mean, one, one word or one sentence about this from my point of view. And I think also uh, Bilali uh, talk about this uh, in, in the context of um, I would say 
allowing or giving room for, for failure or giving room for mistakes. Um, and I think that's something that I've learned in the military. And that's something that um, at least I'm not representing the Israeli military. It's a very big organization. And I only had a small part in, in one intelligence unit. So I'm, I'm speaking from my specific perspective in, in A200 in the intelligence. Uh, but many of the entrepreneurs are coming from there from the intelligence forces and from A200. And I think what's unique about the unit in that context is that the unit it gives a lot of room for mistakes and gives a lot of room for different thoughts. And I think the concept of failing forward came from there, meaning that, I mean, the, the attitude of it is okay to fail, it is okay to make a mistake, you will not lose your job necessarily. The debriefing process is not about finding who to blame, but what went wrong and how we can improve it. And I think that this is something that culturally allows, because people are not worried to, you know, to acknowledge their mistakes and kind of like say, you know, I, I'm saying more than once uh, every week, probably, you know what, I was wrong about this. That was a bad choice. Let's learn from it and let's change it. And I think that this is something, at least from, I don't know about IDF, again, a very big organization, mm -hmm. from the intelligence unit and specifically the intelligence forces and specifically the A200 unit, this is something unique to the unit that everyone has their opinion and everyone can, can also make mistakes and this will be tolerated. Mm. Thank you. So the failing forward and learning from the mistakes. And Ambassador Carney, you spoke about uh, chutzpah and how it's difficult to adapt that quality to Singapore. Can, could you elaborate a little more? Like, how can we? Are there countries that you have, or people that you've noticed overseas that have sort of used it successfully or developed that successfully? I think I, I said it before. This is not something I recommend. Not recommended. Other people's to. Um, to try to imitate, I think it's 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 part of the culture, and uh, there is also um, uh, obviously negative elements to it. So um, I can only speak of what I see and what I know of my own, own people, but uh, there's not something that I'm gonna give advice. I mean, the, try this a little bit more, and uh, definitely not gonna give advice to the SAF over Zoom. Um, but, um, what I can say is that between Israel and Singapore, that goes for decades. I mean, we're very open. We are always happy to share our uh, experiences, uh, our thoughts, uh, our dilemmas as well. And um, at the end of the day, it's 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 up to the uh, to the listeners to to think what they like to take of it. That's all. Uh, Edmund, can I say something? Yes, please. In Singapore, we have hood spa. We call it being Kwailan, no? And it's a <laughs> negative aspect of that um, Kani uh, Sagi talked about. So we already have it. We have to channel it in the right direction. <laughs> that, that is true. In fact, I was thinking about that adaptation. It's it's a different lingo. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's being willing to yeah to 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 question in a constructive, hopefully in a constructive manner. 
So on, on, on this note, uh, I would like to thank uh, our distinguished speakers and our participants. Thank you very much for this joining us for this very enjoyable and enriching uh, webinar. I would like to especially also thank uh, MEI uh, and Dr. Alexandro and the team behind it, uh, the Sharon and team. And, and lastly, this would not have been possible without Chairman Bilahari's support. Uh, so thank you so much, uh, Chairman Bilahari, and to all of you, Ambassador Kani, thank you for taking up taking your, your leave break to join us. And thank you, Roy, for joining us from Tel Aviv too. So best wishes to everybody, and we look forward to you participating in the next uh, MEI webinar. And uh, on behalf of every uh, the organizers, thank you, and have a, a great day ahead. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Come on. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Roy.